Uh, so in our Bible studies, Tuesday and Wednesday, we were we just finished with Genesis 1-12, and we left it at the promises to Abraham. Um, so those are there, we know the crack. Um, what did he promise? Test. Janice, one thing he promised to Abraham. Um, plenty of uh, offspring. Loads of offspring, aye. Anything else? Land. Land. Land of Canaan, yeah. Oh, she's going to test you that. Uh, yeah, great name is another thing. And um, that the whole world will be blessed through him. If you looked at this uh, Jesus thing. So that blessing has been said to Abraham. We recognise that he wasn't very special. He's just chosen. And then there are chapters and chapters and chapters. But no son. Promise of offspring to a barren wife and a barren husband. No offspring. Um, and there was an offspring for someone else, but that wasn't what God was doing. But nine chapters later, nine chapters later, Isaac is finally born. And Abraham is a hundred years old when this happens. And remember, this is the offspring of Abraham, that God, and God specifically says it of Isaac, through whom he'll have a huge family, a great name, inherit massive land, and the whole earth will be saved through this baby. So he's going to be very careful not to drop that baby on his head. Precious. And probably no baby on the earth was ever looked after as well as that baby. Um, and then we have this chapter. The chapter before, 21, is when Isaac is born. And in this chapter, God says, here you son. Can you imagine that? Uh, get the passage up. Read verse 3, verse 2. Take your son. He's hearing from God. He probably thinks, oh, more information on the blessings and the future. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moria and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Tie him down, cut his throat, burn his body. That is shocking, right? What is going on in this story? We're meant to feel shocked. Um, shocking that a good God could ask one of his, his main follower to do such a horrendous thing. Sacrifice his own son, whom he loves. But it's more shocking than that. Because this is the one who all the blessings promised through. He's promised it through this guy Isaac, and then he says, kill him. How can God ask for the murder of this kid? And I don't know if you felt it in the story, but the story is written so that we feel the pain of it. It's, it's agonizingly slow getting to the point. The command's given in verse 2, and then it tells the story. Abraham got up early. Can you imagine what he's thinking? Sounded his donkey, chose two servants, Isaac. First thing they do is go and cut down some trees, make some wood for the, for the burnt offering. And then he, they set out to the place God had told him about. He's been shown a place in his head where he's going. 
And so they get on a donkey and they're looking three days travel, all the time it's playing on his mind, I'm killing my son. God told me to do it, what is he doing? I'm killing my son. The knife's in the, in his, the murder weapon's in his back pocket. And then they get to the place and Abraham realises this is it. Ask the servants to stay there. Him and his son walk up the hill step by step by step. And the boy's asking, where's the sacrifice? Can you imagine as a father what he'd have to say back to that? Oh, God will provide. Knowing it's him that's going to be killed. Isaac's portrayed as innocent, isn't he? Then they're building the altar, arranging the wood. And finally, verse 9, he starts binding Isaac, tying him down to the altar. And in verse 10, Abraham reaches out with a knife ready to slaughter his son. That's the, the kind of climax. And it's, the story is just showing how painful it was, how crazy it was. How can God ask for the slaughter and sacrifice of Abraham's kid? Is it just to test his faith? Quite a sick test, isn't it? But Abraham is faithful to this command. And he's playing out um, a set of events that are going to happen again. And it's because the Holy Spirit, it's not just a sick test, the Holy Spirit is showing us loads more this morning than just a faithful guy called Abraham. Events in Genesis 2 picturing the most glorious event that will ever happen in history. Our studies in John, like I've said, are taking a turn away to the cross. And this story is pointing to the cross. So how does it fit the cross? Well, where does it happen? Mountain in Moria. Where on earth is that? Well, Mount Moria is where David would build the, temp- the altar of the God. That's where Jerusalem is. So he's This all happens on a hill in Jerusalem. Jesus would be murdered almost in sight of that hill, the next hill over. You hear about that in 2 Chronicles. Um, And what does the temple signify? God's presence on earth. Who is Isaac? Isaac is Abraham's offspring. He is the fulfilment of the promises in Genesis 12. Who else do we know who brought the promises of Genesis 12 to fulfilment? Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. Um, Abraham's offspring, Isaac, will save the whole world, won't he? That's what, this child has been born, this is going to be the one who all the world will be blessed through, all the world will be saved through, this child. And in a sense, that child is the hope. We were looking at how the curse of Genesis chapter 3 it's promised to be reversed. Isaac is that curse-changing child. Jesus Christ is the curse-changing child in the same way. Um, Isaac was a miracle birth. Barren mother has a child. Jesus, miracle birth. Um, we have an innocent son sentenced to be killed at the command of God. Jesus was totally innocent and yet God killed him. Isaac, in his portrayed particularly, has done nothing wrong. And did you notice he's, he's not just asked to be killed, but asked to be um, a burnt offering? 
an atoning sacrifice. And in verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And they walked up the hill. Isaac literally carried the wood that would be his, what he'd be killed on, up the hill to be murdered. Jesus did exactly the same thing, didn't he? He took the cross on his shoulder and walked up the hill. All these layers just lay on. He is the only beloved son. Even when God tells him to kill him, your only, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Jesus is the son of God, the only son of God, who is loved. And the ram, why is the ram found? Oh, it always struck me as odd in this story. Isaac says, where's the lamb for the offering? Oh, God will provide the lamb. But in the end, a ram is found. In replacement of Isaac as a ram. Um, because God is still waiting to provide the lamb. The lamb will be provided on those hills for the salvation of the world. This sacrifice doesn't happen. We're still waiting for the lamb that God will provide. And in fact, this story, Abraham's faith, the reason he goes through with everything, there's this almost unspoken bedrock of resurrection every week. There's this unspoken bedrock of resurrection in this story. Um, God has directly promised to Abraham that his ancestors will go across the world through Isaac. So as Abraham sits there and is about to murder his own son, he believes the promises of God that God will resurrect this child. So this story is, there's an, an overlaid assumption of resurrection going on. And of course, Jesus was resurrected. Um, Hebrews 11 actually spells it out. That's exactly what Abraham was expecting. As he goes to kill Isaac, he's expecting God to raise him from the dead. That's exactly what's going through his head. So hopefully you're convinced that this chapter is a foreshadowing of the cross in loads and loads and loads of ways. The chapter's actually screaming Jesus has. It's screaming the cross. It's saying there's something else going on here. The sacrifice doesn't get... Abraham doesn't go through with the sacrifice because it's still to come. And this is 2,000 years before it happened. And when we read these passages in the the Bible, and quite often, when it feels a bit odd, the answer is, how is Jesus? How is this passage talking about Jesus? And God doesn't follow through with it because he doesn't kill children. But he's picturing, he's doing something more important here. He's foreshadowing the death of Christ. And actually, the timing is brilliant. Um... Isaac, more than anyone else in sort of the history of the Bible, kind of um, pictures the hope of Jesus Christ in that he is the one offspring of Abraham that can bring salvation. Afterwards, there's other offspring that can carry on the promises of Genesis 12. But at this point, all the promises of Genesis 12, all the promises of blessing to the world, salvation to the world, rest on this one child. And it's at this timing that God says, right, let's do a story. Let's picture the cross. Because all of the hope of the world is laid on Isaac, and I'm going to kill him. 
and so we should see that the Saviour of the world came to die. The one who is all hope and salvation rests on him is coming to die. That's what Genesis 22 is saying. And so I want to highlight two things that the story um, helps us see on the cross. More That brings out two things. The first thing is that Jesus is the saviour of the world. Um, the promises of Abraham are confirmed after this story. Let's just read them in verses 16. Um, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, we could read it, because the promised saviour dies. Um, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. All the world will be saved through Christ. All the people that put their faith in Christ. And Ellen, that, she, last week she saw the stars across the sky without all the light pollution. Uncountable, right? Yeah. Uncountable. Christians across the world from every nation blessed through Christ. And we are sons of Abraham. Um, and so this story not only links us to Jesus as Abraham, sorry, this story not only links us to us as Abraham's offspring, but it specifically links us to a, specifically links us to as Abraham's offspring because of the death of someone. It's the death that brings that salvation in this story. The death that brings the fruition of the promises, the obedience of the son being killed that brings the promises true. Um, and so this is the gospel message we've got. It's not that Jesus is nice um, and we're friendly Christians and you can have a crack with us and we're nice. Um, but actually that we believe in Christ crucified, a man killed embarrassingly on a cross for the salvation of the world. And it's only through him that we're saved. Um, and so I think sometimes we... we Maybe it's just me. But when we're telling people about Jesus, bringing up the cross feels a bit weird. Oh, I love Jesus. Even if we get to that, that's good going if you get into there. But, that's, but saying, I love the guy who died on a cross like a dirty criminal. I love the guy who God killed. God killed his only son. That's the salvation story we have. Um, 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul says, Don't be ashamed... Um, of the testimony about our Lord. Let's not be ashamed that our salvation comes through someone getting killed. And in fact, a father putting up his own son for death. God the Father putting the son up for death. We're, we're saying in our gospel preaching, come and see the most powerful man in the world, whipped and beaten, carrying his own wooden torture device to his death. And that's what forgives sins. That's what we get excited about on a Sunday morning. It is weird. Uh, Genesis 22 is showing us that this is, this is the plan. And also that he would bear the wrath of God for us. Um, it's an atoning sacrifice, isn't it, in this story? Um, 
the Father killed the Son for us. And so let's try and feed that kind of idea into conversations with each other. Um, so the second thing, so the first thing it highlights is that the Saviour must die. The second thing the story highlights is the pain of the cross. Like that story of Abraham taking his child. God the Father killed God the Son to bless the world, to give us salvation. It wasn't just some animal. It was called the Son. It was God the Father who brought the knife and the fire and poured his wrath out on the Son for us. Did you feel the emotional turmoil of the story? Let me just... Daniel! I love Daniel. Actually, recently I've been quite, getting quite emotional thinking about him dying um, and how sad it would be. But my only son, I have to take him, walk with him. This is a story. Take him to the hill. We're going to go for a fun trip. Is that fun? But then you get to the top and in the story, Isaac's shown is really obedient. He probably was kicking and screaming. Can you imagine tying your own son down on an altar that he knows what it's for? Can you imagine? No, you can laugh. Isaac wouldn't be laughing. You tie him down. And you have to kill him. That is horrendous. And it's picturing what the father did to the son on the cross. Killed his only son. He wasn't as happy about it as Daniel. But yeah. But it, it, it's brutal. And the story really highlights, I mean, we miss, I'm going to hear the passion story, is that the pain for the father, the pain for the father, it was their, both their plan together, the pain of the father to pour up the wrath on the son, the pain to let him, let him get beaten and ridiculed, when he is the most glorious person on the planet, and yet he was beaten and ridiculed and tied to that wood, and then he didn't just watch from afar, he poured out his wrath on him as well. For, for us, for our salvation. And then from Jesus' perspective, imagine you're the boy, and Jesus knew a bit more about what was going on, but he walked to that death, and we've got a picture of an obedient son who just says, Tanya, horrendous. This is what our salvation cost. This is the price that we were bought at. The blood of Jesus is not just a, a symbol it's the cost. The mountain was called God will provide. And they never got their lamb. They got a ram instead. And so for generation after generation, from that moment on, they, people would look at that mountain and say, God will provide a lamb. One day, that lamb came. God provided the lamb of God and slaughtered him on the mountain for us. Romans 5 says, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. That's what's happened to us. If you have put our faith in Christ, justified, how are we justified? By his blood, by his death. Much more shall be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. 
the wrath of God, we also get saved from. Our sin is taken away, and so is the wrath of God. We have been justified, made righteous by the blood spilled at his death, and it was a huge cost, the slaughtering of God the Son. It's not just easy for God, because, oh, God, I can do whatever I want, did it? He's slaughtering his own son. They have been in love since before eternity. So the blood of the Lamb is what we're stained in that song we sang, is, is what we need to cling to in our Christian life. Um, and so we've bought at such a price. And the question is, if we've put our faith in Christ and it costs so much, what do we, what do, we do with that information? And let's just think about uh, the application that Paul makes in Romans. He spends 11 chapters talking about, mostly, the salvation that we have, how it plays out, the consequence of things, um, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us, and talks about um, how all sin came through Adam, and yet all, we're all made righteous through Christ, how we're brought into Abraham's family through Christ. It's all this theology, and the cost is laid out in front of us, what God has done for us. And then you get Romans 12. And it's maybe the biggest therefore in the Bible. You get to it. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of all that God has done for you in the death of Christ, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. This is the application of seeing the cost. Um, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Janice mentioned this when she got baptised. Um, in response to Jesus taking that wood up that hill, the obedience of Christ, we join him. We give up our life. That is the call of Jesus. Um, but it's not an obligation. It's worship. That's what it's described as. It's not we feel we have to. We look at the sacrifice, the pain of the sacrifice, the salvation that we've received, and we worship by giving up our lives. And it's praise, giving up the comforts and this short, these short few years for Jesus is worth it. It's worship to him. It's praise of him to the sacrificial lamb. Um, and do not be conformed to this age. The world around us is lying to us. Um, it's more in our faces probably than it's ever been in history because of all the different ways it can get into us. Um, renew your mind. Don't fall into the trap of the world, but renew your mind. Come to church, read the Bible, pray, pray, pray. Don't sit on your phone endlessly scrolling. Um, don't watch telly all day. Don't play video games all day. Don't maybe watch the news all day. Little bits here and there, fine. But renew your minds. Do not be conformed to this age. Read the word, listen to it. Don't restrict God to just 15 minutes of quiet time. Let him infiltrate the heartbeat of your daily life. 
renew your minds by the Spirit. And rejecting the influence of this, influences of this world is key. And without this step of renewing our minds, we can't do the first bit. We cannot offer our bodies as living sacrifices. If our minds aren't renewed. If we're not constantly renewing our minds, we just won't be very good, will we? How can you give your body as a living sacrifice when you're not dwelling on the person and the gospel you're responding to? Uh, I think that's where I want to leave it really today. But there's one other thing to say. That when we see the cost of the salvation that we have, the reason we repent and believe is because we know what our past life did to Jesus. That past life that we're repenting from cost him the cross. So we repent and believe. We turn away from the sins that put him on that cross. And uh, we were looking this way. In Romans, it just doesn't make sense. Well, I've been forgiven. I'll carry on sinning. Have you forgotten what it costs to forgive you? So that's why when we become Christians, we repent. The tax collector, giving back all that he owed and changing his life. Because he said, I've been forgiven. I need to change my life. Let me pray with all these things in mind. Father, we um, have seen today, hopefully, the cost of our sin. Um, It was in your plan. It was in the Son's plan to willingly pay this cost to redeem us from our unrighteous life. Oh, this chapter helps us focus on that huge cost. And yet that is how salvation of the world came to be. Father, we pray that we would dwell on the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of your acts in salvation. And they are shocking. But Lord, that is the gospel that we've been saved by. Give us boldness to preach it and give us thankful hearts and help us respond to you by giving up our bodies as a living sacrifice, by renewing our minds, focusing it on the living God and on the Son of God who is seated above the heavens. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to sing a song that reminds us of this our sin is nailed to the cross that's the cost and it's time for praise because it's a hard story it's a wonderful truth for us